0: Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org.
1: Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our teaching series that we began last week that we've entitled Christmas in the City. And this year... When I say I'm excited, I really mean it this time. Sometimes you can say I'm really excited, but I really am excited about what we're doing this year um, c- because we're partnering with four other churches here in the area to come together and to uh, preach in each other's pulpit. I've, to- I've told you this before, Missio Day Church, Fellowship Asheville, Westwood Baptist, we're going to be doing a service with them. And this morning, Lance Michaels uh, from the Grove Church is with us, and if you remember back uh, earlier this year when we were under the tents, I said that there is a church that we're partnering with that, that's going to come and use the tents in the evening. Well, this is the the pastor of that church, and one of the things that I am have been really blessed is the more that Lance and I talk, the more that I hear his heart. Kelly and I and some of the kids came and visited their church on a a Sunday afternoon. Not that we're looking to join their church, but we wanted to just be a part of what they were doing. He actually came and visited our church to see what we were doing and to be ministered to. Uh, One of the things, the more I talk to Lance, the more I hear what God is doing in in his heart, in his church. I hear his vision, uh, his purpose, uh, his mission for the church. I'm like, are you sure you're not talking about our church? Because it's a very kindred spirit they were very like-minded, and you know, the number one thing that I love about their church is that they're gospel-centered. Um, Lance understands uh, that he needs, he still needs a savior, right? Okay, good. He's still, he's his wife, right? He said, ask his wife. Um, but that, you know, he understands that the gospel isn't just an uh, entry point into uh, heaven, and then you go on to bigger and better things. The gospel is the message about Jesus. And so, he has the same passion that we have as a church. So that excites me really uh, greatly as I think about the upcoming seasons uh, that the Lord would allow us to partner together and doing some things together as churches. Uh, One of the things that we realize at Reach Life Church is that our church cannot reach the city by ourselves. And so we're seeing God bring churches together to partner together using resources and gifts so, because every church has certain strengths and and weaknesses and vice versa, that if we can come together and learn how to work together and we can reach the city together, we can reach Asheville together. So I'm really excited about Lance coming and preaching this morning. I hope that we'll have more opportunities where we can we can do this And um, so at this time, Lance is going to come and preach the Word of God. If you'll welcome him as he comes.
0: Thanks, James. As he said, I am so excited about this series. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, Your pastor has been just such a blessing to me. My wife and I uh, moved up here uh, early 2019, Um, our church was a church planted in 2015. Um, and uh, and the original planting pastor decided to step down from from that plant in 2018, and so I was a, a pastor at the Summit Church in Durham, and uh, we had had this long kind of adoption journey where we'd had multiple adoptions fall through. Uh, we had been uh, we had been overseas about 10 years ago and um, ended up back in the states, and so. Uh, we had just been in this long journey of feeling like we were waiting on the Lord for for a lot of things in our life and and uh, had found myself in a pretty comfortable, cushy kind of ministry position where we didn't have to depend on the Lord for a lot of things when it came to ministry, uh, but we were depending on Him for, uh, for family and for adoption, so our, our daughter Thea is a little bit of a miracle, uh, and I'll tell you her story maybe at another time, but Uh, Just a a miracle. And when she came um, in that whole process of of her coming into our lives, we began to really wrestle with uh, was our yes on the table to follow God wherever he would call us to go and do whatever he would call us to do. And, and we realized that we had kind of kept that yes off the table. We had kind of said, hey, God, if you do these things in our life, then we'll, then we'll follow you. And so we committed to say, God, um, our life is your life, and we're not going to put um, requirements on you for you to have our obedience. You can have all of us, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. And, uh, and two days later, we got a phone call about our daughter. And uh, and then two weeks later, I got a phone call about the church plant in Asheville. And, uh, and so uh, we just couldn't keep up with the Lord and what he was doing. And then we ended up in Asheville. And guess what? Um, all that dependency that we wanted to have on the Lord for ministry and, and that kind of thing, we have it now. So uh, that's ministry in Asheville. And so I'm so grateful. Um, James actually... Uh, helped us make uh, prevent the the great maybe one of the greatest pur- purchasing mistakes of our lives. we We almost bought this house that was like falling apart. Don't know what we were thinking. He came over and looked at it and was like, "Hey, man, I don't know you, but don't do this. So uh, so thank you for that. Um, but uh, it's ever since then, we've just gotten to know each other and just become better and better friends. And so I just love, love him. Love your church. Your church has been a blessing to our church in so many ways, so many ways that you don't even realize there is a kindredness. There is a unity. and um, and so uh, we are just so excited about Reach Life Church and what God is doing in your church and what He's doing through your church. and and I really do when he says, Uh, when he says, working together to reach the city, I do believe that God is doing something by the power of his spirit through gospel-centered churches to do something in a city like Asheville. Um, His hand is not too short to save, amen? Amen. Um, And he is a God who saves, and, and so he is a God who is planting churches that proclaim the good news about Jesus for the the people in the city of Asheville to see and ultimately for the world. And so um, I'm just grateful to be part of that, to be here with you guys and to see what the Lord will do in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead of us. Um, we are in the series, Christmas in the city. I think this was Fred Baker's idea at Fellowship Asheville. Um, just an incredible idea to do a Christmas series together with several other churches in the city. And so we are going through uh, in Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two, these these songs about Jesus' birth, these songs that come out of out of um, these these prophecies and these moments of um, great declaration about the greatest news in the history of the world, and so uh, so this week is is actually the second sermon, so it actually works out really well. Zechariah is supposed to be the second uh, sermon in this series, and for you guys, it is. I preached it last week at my church, and it was really confusing to explain to everybody where we were. So by sharing these sermons, we can't do them perfectly in order, um, but you see these in, in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And so um, so we're going to look at this story of Zechariah this morning, and in fact, we're going to just, I'll I'll kind of recap some of the things that are happening in it. We're just going to read the song. And so we're going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through the end of the chapter, and so, um, but let me pray for us before we before we read. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that proves true. Thank you that this morning, as we come, that we can um, we can come not in a um, in a desperate attempt to somehow figure out truth on our own, but in a world where there are so many uh, claims about what's true, and so many uncertainties, and so much division, and so much chaos, and so much. Um, just devastation and darkness. God, thank you this morning that when we come, we have the light of your word and that your truth, the truth of your word has held up over time. It will always prove true. So we rest in that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 1, verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. In spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, if you're if you're new to the Bible, um, the the logical question for you would be, um, what what is the big deal about John the Baptist? What's the big deal about this John the Baptist guy? I mean, if Jesus is the reason for the season, um, he's the Messiah. Why why is Luke making such a big deal about John the Baptist? What is the big deal about John? The Baptist. Well, to answer this, uh, despite what some modern day preachers are telling you to answer this, it's really helpful to have the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. but We have a place to look back and actually see why this came to be, why all the instances in the story, why all the details, all the circumstances are incredibly important. I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible doesn't just throw details out there for no reason. Um, everything is important. So let's look back to the Old Testament, um, and I'll just I'll just give you some of these recaps. But in Isaiah chapter nine, uh, the prophet Isaiah talks about a, a, a world of great darkness, a world of great di- darkness in which people walked in darkness. Does that sound familiar to you at all? I don't know. Like we throw out 2020 out there all the time, but 2020 is just the reality of our world. Um, all the the brokenness and all the darkness that we've seen in this year. Um, it, it feels a little bit like a magnifying gla- glass. Somebody just put it on a megaphone and we're, we're hearing it all. But that's, that's the reality of our world. It's a very dark world in which people walked in darkness. But in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah promises that, that, that there is going to come a great light to shine into the darkness. A lot of churches in this season are, are preaching sermons on Isaiah 9 because Isaiah goes into the detail of what that light looks like. Well, in Malachi chapter 4, which is the last chapter in the last book of the Old Testament, we're reminded that much like the sun, which rises to overwhelm the darkness, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is the anticipation of God's people. That the world is dark, that there's darkness in the world, and that there is a light that's coming to shine into that darkness. That that, that God is going to do something about the darkness. He's not going to just leave it. The darkness doesn't have the final say. The darkness doesn't get the last laugh. God is going to do something about the darkness and he's going to shine light into it to end the darkness. But here's what's crazy. Malachi ends, the very last verse in Malachi, the very last verse in the last book, in the last chapter of the Old Testament, ends with a promise that God is going to send someone like Elijah, a prophet who will speak into the darkness about the coming light. So before light just shows up into the world, there's going to be somebody who's going to come and say, hey, dawn is coming. I mean, you, you got to understand that, that if it's been dark and darkness is in the world to just all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but you know, if I'm walking in a dark room, I don't want somebody to shine a flashlight in my eyes. I, I, want, I want to see that the light is coming. And, 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 and the Old Testament ends with this promise that, that there's going to come one who's going to tell people that the light is coming into the world. And then? Silence. 400 years of silence. No prophecies, no instructions, no promises, nothing. Just, just silence in the world. The world goes on and, and the people of God become more and more marginalized and it seems like the darkness just only increases. But then after 400 years, an elderly priest named Zechariah is performing his priestly duties in the, in the temple in Jerusalem when the angel Gabriel shows up and tells him that he's going to have a son who will go forward in the power and the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now, what you gotta know about Zechariah is that he and his wife Elizabeth are somewhere around 70 to 80 years old. There's, there's a few things that you shouldn't do when you're 80 years old. One of those is play professional sports. Uh, the other is is wear deep V uh, t-shirts, V-neck t-shirts out in public, men. Um, and then you shouldn't have a baby at eighty, right? Like this is this is crazy. And so this angel, the angel Gabriel, shows up and tells Zechariah, "You're gonna, you're, you and Elizabeth are gonna have a baby." And this is just dumbfounding. And you got to know Zechariah. He's he's a common man. He, yes, he's a priest. But you know he's probably not very highly esteemed. You see, as a priest uh, in the public eye without children, that's a bit of, a, of an embarrassment. I mean, Zechariah would have known the Old Testament scriptures teach that children are a blessing from the Lord. So to be in the public eye and be responsible for uh, teaching the Old Testament scriptures, but to not have that blessing to be kind of listed among the unblessed was quite a reproach. In fact, that's what Elizabeth called it. She called it a reproach. They had this reproach over their life. And so he doubts what Gabriel says. And because he doubts, he loses his ability to speak. For nine months, he watches Elizabeth's belly grow and can't say anything about it. Can you imagine waiting your whole life, wanting to have kids, not being able to have kids, all of a sudden you're gonna have a kid and you can't say anything about it. What, 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 a, what a terrible position to be in. Then, then the time comes for John to be born. And, and so John is born and, and, and everybody rejoices with Elizabeth. But after his birth, you would think, okay, here, the baby's here. You, now Zechariah's mouth should be open. He should be able to see. He still can't talk. Eight days after his birth, Neighbors and, and family members showed up for a circumcision party, which sounds kind of weird to us, but um, uh, but but this is for them obedience to the Mosaic law, which required you to circumcise a male child on the eighth day. This is as important to them as the birth itself, consecrating their son to the Lord, and here naming them, naming him. In their culture, children would always be named after someone in the family, so. The people at the party are thinking, okay, wow, this is amazing. After all this time, you're having a son. And, uh, and, and so obviously the, the son is going to be, you know, Junior. I mean, you know, Zechariah, Junior. What's that, John? No, we said Junior. Like, wh- who's John? Why, wh- where is this name John coming from? Is anybody in your family named John? So what do they do? They, they, they think, well, Elizabeth, you must be mistaken. Let, let's get Zechariah to, to tell us. It's interesting because right before this, it says they made motions to Zechariah. Uh, which means that he wasn't just mute; he was also deaf. Kind of living in a tunnel of his own doubt, and so they make motions to him, and he what it, he takes out a tablet, and he writes, his name is John. Parents, by the way, if you're if you're if you're going to have a baby. Um, I think this is probably good practice. Don't tell anybody before the baby comes along what the name's going to be. You know, don't deal with all of that. You know, you just wait, wait until the baby's here, and then you can, you can say the name. Here, here's Zechariah. His name is John. John, Yohanan in Greek means the Lord has given grace. He writes down, his name is John. This is the moment his mouth is open. Here's the moment where he gets his speech back. His reiteration that the child's name is John isn't just to show solidarity with his wife. He wrote out, listen, he wrote out what he hadn't believed before, that his son would be a forerunner for the light of the Messiah coming into the world. John 1 says that, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. He himself was not the light. He came only to tell about the light. Zechariah's mouth wasn't open because he believed that he was going to have a son. I mean, that had already happened. God opened his mouth because he believed the Messiah, the light from heaven, was coming into the world, and his son was going to tell people about it, just like God promised he would. In other words, he believed the gospel about Jesus Christ. He believed the good news about Jesus. Here was this man who knew all these scriptures who knew all these prophecies, who knew all this biblical teaching, and and when the critical time came, he doubted. You can have all the information in the world, but unless the gospel is actually the most important thing, unless the gospel plays out in your life, unless the gospel brings hope and joy, you, you just got nothing but knowledge. The gospel is what changes everything. Now, before we get into what Zechariah says, let's consider the significance of this moment. His entire life, he had served in in the line of priests to present offerings to the Lord in anticipation for the long-awaited Messiah. But it's been hundreds of years. So you're a man who has lived with the reproach of not having children for so long. Then when the angel of the Lord comes to tell you that you're having a child and the significance of this child, you can't speak about it because of your unbelief. So for nine months, you're deaf and you're mute. What would you do if you lost your senses of hearing and speech for nine months? you'd think. You'd you actually spend some time thinking. Without the ability to, to, to listen or to talk, you'd start thinking about things that you used to take for granted. You'd pay attention to the details. C.S. Lewis uh, once described the, the spiritual reality of noise in his fiction, The Screwtape Letters. In it, we see letters written from a demon named Screwtape. He, he writes letters to his nephew apprentice uh, uh, named Wormwood about the best practices in their line of demon work. Um, and in one of the letters, Screwtape describes the risk of losing this, this young man, who they call their patient, uh, the, the risk of losing him as he's walking silently in the British Museum thinking. And Screwtape is like, hey, we got to do something about this. This guy's thinking. We, we can't let this happen. So, so his advice to young Wormwood is get him back out on the street. Get him back out into the noise, get him back out into society, get him back out into culture so he stops thinking. You wanna know why everybody was so freaked out during quarantine in a pandemic? Oh, wait, we have to think. The, the noise of, and the chaos of world that brings us comfort to be able to just continue to live life the way that we've lived it is now gone. We have to deal with ourselves Silence and solitude sometimes is really, really, really important. Whether you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus or not, there's no denying that we live in a dark world. There's darkness everywhere, and that darkness serves as a noise to drown out the thoughts in your head. You have questions, and God has answers. Zechariah's entire priestly life had drawn on the promises of the Old Testament scriptures, yet it didn't automatically kick in when Gabriel showed up and told him that all of that was coming true. His instinct was to doubt. But now what he's about to sing is almost entirely Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah had been meditating so heavily on the promises of the Messiah from the Old Testament, these these past nine months of silence, that it all came bursting forth in the moment that his tongue was loosened. The moment that he got his speech back, the moment that he got his hearing back, all he could do was unleash the promises of God, an explosion of joyful confidence in the sure promises of God's word. Some scholars have have drawn have said that, that as many as 33 allusions and quotations from the Old Testament are found in just this short little song. So he sings, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, "'for he has visited and redeemed his people, "'and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us "'in the house of his servant David.'" as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah opens his mouth, singing about a descendant of David. That's not John. Zechariah knows where, where John's, who John is a descendant of. John is a descendant of Aaron. He sings about Jesus first, not John. He doesn't worship his son first. He doesn't get excited about his son first. He gets excited about the gospel. He gets excited about Jesus coming into the world. As excited as he was about his own own son, he knew the greater importance of Mary's son. Zechariah's song of blessing refers to the horn of salvation being lifted up. The Old Testament describes the strength of of a people as horns of an animal that that is either raised up or, or felled in defeat. In in Psalm 75, 10, God says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. In Jeremiah, God confirms that the enemy of Israel, Moab, has had its horns cut off. That means that they've they've lost their power. So we see the significance of of the horn that is the strength and victory um, of God's people. But it isn't just a horn of God's people, it's a horn of salvation. Salvation how? Well, Zechariah tells us in the song. Salvation through redemption and deliverance. Redemption and deliverance. Um, Redemption, while it would be incredible enough for the Messiah to simply visit his people, he does far more. He does what is necessary. The word, by the way, redemption, uh, means to rescue at an incredible cost. The victory represented by this horn of salvation meant that there there was gonna be a cost. There would be a cost. Jesus, this child Jesus, yes, he would be raised up, but it would be in his death on a cross raised up. This would be the cost to redeem God's people, to pay the redeeming price necessary to pay for their sins. But we also see that the horn of salvation provides deliverance. In Exodus 27, we see uh, four horns placed at the four corners of the altar. Each horn, each of the horns were covered by the, in the blood of an unblemished lamb to make atonement for sin. Their purpose was to convey to people the power of God's salvation. So the, that part of the altar became a place of refuge for fugitives who were running from, from something that they had done. Uh, what would happen is they would run to the altar, they would lay their hands on one of the horns, and they would plea for mercy. Asking for deliverance. In fact, in First in, in Kings chapter one, you see the story of Solomon, uh, rightfully becoming king. Well, there was this guy uh, Adonijah who tried to steal his throne. And as soon as Solomon was was appointed rightfully to to the throne, Adonijah knew, okay, I've messed up. I've got a have got a bad situation on my hands. I tried to steal this guy's throne. It didn't work out for me. What am I going to do? He runs to the altar, lays his hands on the on, on the horns, and pleads. For mercy, if you're listening today, you're here, you're, you're, you're online. You need, you need to know that that God has provided a way of deliverance. That your sins, though they be many, God has provided a way for you you to be made whiter whiter than snow, for you for your 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 sins to be cleaned, for for God to deliver you from the things that you have done. Uh, some of you are, are just dealing in your life, have maybe just sort of kind of defaulted to, I have these things that I've done and I cannot escape them. And so they're just the reality of my world. And I'm just going to live with that for the rest of my life. You need to know that we serve a God who delivers. The song continues. To show mercy, promise to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Now, Zechariah uh, he references this this, this crazy story um, that comes from Genesis chapter fifteen. This is like this is one of those things that um, you read in the Bible and you just go, "What is happening here?" Um, Abraham in Genesis fifteen he has this vision. That you know, if you're Abraham, you're probably wondering, did I eat spicy food last night because this is like like this is just a crazy dream, but God comes to him and he tells him i want you to I want you to take these animals and I want you to cut them in half. I want you to cut all these animals in half Now we look at that and we go that's 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 pretty bizarre why Why are you cutting these animals in half? Well, in Abraham's day, they didn't have things like contracts where you know you you know, we have DocuSign. sign. We can do everything online today. When we buy a house, we can you know sign a contract. When you get married, you sign uh, to say that you know you you are legally married. We, we have things like that in our culture. That's not what they had. In their day, they had this was their form of a contract. You would cut an animal in half and then and then you would walk through the parts or the pieces of the animals. And what would happen is is as you walk through, the bottom of your robe would be drug along the parts of, of the animals. So the blood from the animals would stain the bottom of your robe. And what would happen is, is that people who bound together in a contract, they could look at the bottom of their robe and they would see, hey, if I don't hold up my end of the, th- this covenant, if I don't hold up my end of this contract and, and they could see the, the dried blood at the bottom of their robe to remember that they made this contract, they would say, "Let let let me be as one of these animals, if I don't hold up my end of the deal." Personally, I think some of the contractors who have come to my house to work on things, I would like to do this with them. I think we could get a little bit more done. But this was a this was this was this said a lot. Now, if you if you read the story of Genesis 15, you know what happens is, um, Abraham is still sleeping, and in the dream. God goes through the pieces of the animals. Now, in that day, when a king made a covenant with a servant, usually it was just the servant who who went through because everybody knew the king was going to hold up his end of the deal. It was always the servant who was in question. But in in Genesis 15, the person who doesn't go through the pieces is the servant. It's Abraham. In other words, God is saying to you, hey, listen, um, if, if, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, let me be as these pieces. And if you don't hold up your end of the deal, let me be as these pieces. Let my life be taken. Let my life be offered if you don't hold up your end of the deal. This is the covenant God that we see in the Old Testament. And Zechariah sings of the covenant of Abraham and he celebrates God's fulfillment of it. That that we have failed to hold up our end of the deal. And God is coming into the world to hold, up, to hold up the whole deal anyway. He turns to his own son for two brief, brief verses. Verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. If you read the, the, the sermons of John in the gospels, you'll see a very clear and consistent message. He says over and over in the gospels, Repent and be baptized that you might receive the forgiveness of sins. It's not just that the Messiah would come to rescue his people. It's not just that he would be strong and powerful. It's not just that he would be raised up as a sacrifice, but it is that he would forgive his people of their sins. The birth of the Messiah, the salvation offered is for the forgiveness of sin. We'll come back to that. He finishes the song with this line. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There had been a darkness over Israel for 400 years, nothing but darkness and silence. Then into the darkness comes a great light, Jesus the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves out of the stall. 2 Peter 1.19, Jesus is the morning star who rises in our hearts. Revelation 22.16, He is the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus told his followers in Matthew uh, 13, 43, the righteousness will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Here's the thing. All of that is wonderful and good. In fact, it's, it's better than good. It's the greatest news in the history of the world. It is wonderful news for those who believe it. But what about those who don't? Or those who, at the very least, struggle to believe it? This is where I think, church, that the the story of Zechariah is so important. Not just that it shows us so many places where Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of of all the Old Testament prophecy, including the birth of of a forerunner who's going to come and pave the way for him, but also that it speaks to the very real issue of doubt. Zechariah doubted. And some of you listening today might genuinely, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you might actually struggle with doubt. It's interesting to me that when you read the whole chapter, what you see is that both Mary and Zechariah doubted. Mary doubts Gabriel's promise to her almost exactly the way that Zechariah does, at least on the surface. I mean, the question is actually kind of understandable when you think about it. How can a virgin have a baby? How can two old people have a baby? How is this possible? How how can any of this play out? It doesn't make sense. But the crazy thing is that when Mary doubts, when Mary asks the question, Gabriel just gives more information. But when Zechariah asks the question, he loses his ability to talk. What's the difference? Why, Why does it play out like that? Well, you see, there's a kind of doubt that that really wants to know when it asks the question it's legitimately asking the question how how is this possible please tell me please give me the information let me i'm curious hopefully some of you who if, if you're not a follower of jesus and you're here in this christmas season after a year like 2020 you're asking some questions hopefully your questions are legitimate because there's this other kind of doubt that, that when it asks the question it's not really looking for answers it's just the kind of doubt that wants to hold hold everything at bay. It just well, it, you know, it's like, well, I'll ask the question, but I'll never accept the answer, no matter how it comes, no matter how reliable, no matter how much you prove. <laughs> it's a fulfillment of how many hundred however many hundreds of years worth of prophecy. I'm just not going to accept. If you find yourself in the position of doubt, I want to encourage you. To, not, to allow yourself not to allow yourself this Christmas season to become distracted by all the noise of our of our dark world. Don't let the the demons of busyness and, and just noise keep you from getting real answers. I mean there are, there are legitimate questions. Can, can you save yourself? Do you even need saving in the first place? Do you actually need saving? If you doubt the horn of salvation, may, may I at least challenge you against alternative answers. Most people in our city want to find answers within themselves, want, want to better themselves, want to do more. Uh, so they find hope in things like activism and, 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 and trying to be better in the world. But the question is, if you're going to ask these questions about the gospel, let me just ask you, is that good enough? Isaiah, in in, in Isaiah chapter 9, somewhere 700 to 800 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. He doesn't say from the world, a light has dawned. What he says is upon the world, a light has dawned. The point is, is that the world is a dark place that needs salvation to come from outside of it, not from within it. That means statements like, well, you know, if we all work together, maybe we can make the world a better place. No, we can't. We just can't. We don't have what it takes. You might say, well, I'm a good person. Well, how good is good enough? How good is good enough for you to earn your way into the presence of a holy and righteous God? Well, you might say, well, you know, I have my truth, so I'll just rest on my truth. You can have your truth, but I'll I'll just kind of of rely on my truth. What kind of answer is that? (laughs) You have your truth and I'll have my truth. I just want to ask you, will you doubt your doubts? I love this in this story of Zechariah that we see with Mary and Zechariah. It's okay to have doubts. I just wanna ask you, are you willing to doubt your doubts? Are you willing to ask the same questions of your doubts that you're, you're asking in the story of Christmas? In his book, Hidden Christmas, Tim Keller says that neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. Why not? Well, moralism is essentially the idea that you can save yourself through good works. And this makes Christmas unnecessary. Why would God need to become human in order to live and die in our place if we can just fulfill all the requirements on our own? Relativism is essentially the idea that no one is lost. Everyone should live by their own rights and kind of their own ideas and determine right and wrong for themselves. But the story of Christmas and the message of John the Baptist isn't that we're moral that we aren't just that we aren't moral enough. We need forgiveness of sins. It's not just whether or not we're kind of good enough people, it's actually that we're terrible people and just look around the world and left to ourselves, this is the kind of world that we create. This is the kind of world that we make for ourselves. It's not just that we're not moral enough, it's that we're actually destitute. We have such a hole in our life that we have so much sin in our life, we need forgiveness of that. The reliable truth of hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in the very real life death and resurrection of Jesus aren't just cute Christmas ideas to be entertained along with Santa and his reindeer. They're historically validated truths that aren't just given To us for intellectual banter, the very real Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born exactly the way the prophets foretold. Jesus is our redemption and our deliverance. He is the horn of our salvation, held up on a bloody cross. The price paid for your and my very real sin. Don't miss the message that John came to preach. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. There, There are two. There are two types of people listening. There are two types of people here. There are two types of people listening online. Those who have received forgiveness of sins and those who haven't. Jesus has come into the world, a light shining in the darkness. There's no way out of the darkness on your own. You have sin that will keep you from the light, but Jesus has come that you may have life. See, in the gospel, God doesn't just make bad people better. He makes dead people alive. And that is the offer in this Christmas season that we see this very real s- story of Jesus coming into the world to fulfill everything that God promised, but to offer a way of escape, to offer a way of deliverance, to offer a way of salvation. So for, for, for those of you in the room that, that, don't, that haven't accepted that, today is your day. And for those of you who have, don't forget in this Christmas season what, what kind of hope we have. Amen? We have a God whose word proves true that we can rest, that we can trust, that we know this amazing good news that that gives us hope in a dark year, that gives us hope in a dark world and is the hope for a dark world. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. (laughs) Thank you for saving us when we couldn't save ourselves. Thank you for doing exactly what you said you would do. Thank you for coming into the world exactly the way you said you would come into the world. Thank you for holding up your, your end of the covenant and ours when we failed to do it. Thank you for saving us. God, I pray uh, for those of us who are followers of you, Jesus, that like John the Baptist, that we would go and make a way for people to receive the good news of the gospel in this Christmas season. That, that we would be forerunners of the light. Um, that the light has already come into the world, but for many people, they're still living in darkness. God, I pray that we would go and be gospel lights to our city and to the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.